Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Remember all those stories we did after the pandemic on how different sectors were bouncing back? Now, longer-run data show a trend we couldn't see then. Out-of-the-house services are still flagging. Welcome to the age of the hermit consumer. And Gen Z gets a bad rep for being lazy kids. Apparently, we can't be bothered to go above and beyond at work. They're calling it quiet quitting. But new research has absolved us. We're not the only ones who are sick and tired. First up, though... Today, the American Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, has arrived in Turkey. It's part of a flash diplomatic tour calling for humanitarian pauses in the fighting in Gaza. Intense bombing continued there through the night. For the third time since the war began, all internet and other communications with Gaza have been cut off, suggesting that the Israel Defense Forces, the IDF, could be gearing up for yet another round of strikes. The IDF now claims to have encircled Gaza City and split the coastal enclave in two. According to Israeli media, they plan to enter the city imminently. So for now, the fighting shows no signs of slowing. I was embedded with the Israel Defense Forces 401st Armored Brigade, which has been in Gaza for the last nine days, going in from the northwestern corner of the Gaza Strip and currently in positions in Gaza's northern neighborhoods. Anshul Pfeffer is The Economist's Israel correspondent. The embed was on Saturday afternoon. We spent that time both driving in in the convoy, uh, which was attacked once or twice by explosive devices. And then we spent some time at the command post in the northern neighborhood of Gaza. This weekend was the first time that journalists were allowed in. It was the first sight we got of Gaza on the ground. In the more northern part of the Strip, the small towns north of Gaza City, you could see, I think, entire neighborhoods flattened by the airstrikes. Driving into the city itself, I think most of the buildings were still standing, but many of them were badly damaged. Since uh, Friday night, nine days ago, have been steadily making their way in, first in the towns north of Gaza and now in the town itself. Most of the fighting has been with Hamas uh, members who've quickly been emerging from tunnel exits, trying to launch ambushes against the Israeli forces, and then 
trying to disappear again in some cases that destroyed some of the tunnels they claim to have killed hundreds of hamas fighters but i didn't see any any hamas fighters dead or alive when i was there so tell me what you did see when you were there well you do feel the presence of hamas in the sense that there are constant almost attacks on the israeli forces there we saw mortar bombs being launched at the position where we were at and the convoy we heard gunfire. We were told just that bit earlier there had been some anti-tank missiles launched at them, though we didn't see that. And as we were going into Gaza, just crossing the, the border from Israel, we saw two salvos of rockets being fired from a concealed position towards the Israeli city of Ashdod. So Hamas is still very active under the ground, even though you can barely see it. There are no civilians around. We didn't see any on the way in or out or in the part of Gaza in which we were. The assessment of both Israelis and Palestinian sources is about three quarters of the million plus people living in Gaza City and around it have fled to the south. And most of the people still there, somewhere between two to 300,000 people are still in the city are more concentrated in the center where the Israeli forces have yet to arrive. And over the weekend, the IDF claimed to have cut Gaza into two. What is the significance of that for those remaining in Gaza City? So just to clarify, when we talk about Gaza, we could be talking about the city or we could be talking about the Strip itself. So Gaza Strip has been cut into by Israelis, another force, not the one we were with, but a division uh, operating to the south of Gaza City has made its way west from the Israeli border to the coast and effectively cut the Gaza Strip in two, isolating the city from the rest of the Gaza Strip where most of the civilians are now situated. The Israeli army say that there are one or two ways out. They say it's not a siege, we're allowing people out. There have been some claims that the road out has been shelled by Israel. There's also been counter-Israeli claims that it was actually Hamas trying to prevent civilians from leaving. But for the people who are still inside, it means that they're in a, in a war zone where the fighting is only intensifying. For those in the south, there are notionally safe areas, but there's also some level of warfare going on as well. But at least there, there's also some humanitarian supplies going in from the crossing with Egypt. And what was the mood like with the troops that you were with? Well, I actually found the mood rather serious in the sense that I've covered the Israeli army many times in the past. It's a very informal army. Soldiers, after after their basic training, don't usually salute their officers. In many cases, they call them by their first names. It's a professional army, but it also has this sort of laid-back atmosphere. And I didn't see much of that this time. It was much more somber, I think, than than in previous operations and wars I've covered. Most of these soldiers were called up on October 7, a month ago, when Hamas attacked Israeli communities across the border. And they haven't really been out of this military environment ever since for the past month. They've been training and then in the past nine or 10 days, they've already been inside Gaza. And there, there really is a, a, a feeling that many of them has, have, have told me about people they knew who were killed in the Hamas attacks. And the feeling is that they're there to prevent this from happening again, to eliminate Hamas as a, as a threat in Israel. I really found them a lot more serious than, than, than I've seen Israeli soldiers in the past. And as the IDF is preparing to enter Gaza City, what will that involve exactly? Well, the further they go into Gaza City, it becomes much more densely built up. And that is also where you can expect more civilians to be. And according to Israeli intelligence, 
the, the main Hamas headquarters are under hospitals in the center of Gaza. So whatever way the IDF intends to reach those headquarters and, and destroy them is going to involve a lot of destruction. And it's hard to predict it taking place without a large number of civilian casualties as well. And Anshul, what's the prospect of a ceasefire now, or at least the humanitarian pauses that America's Antony Blinken has been pushing for? Well, those are two different things. A ceasefire is a cessation of hostilities for an undefinable period. Well, the humanitarian pauses are probably going to be, if if and when they happen, for a few hours in an attempt to allow more civilians to leave the the war zone and and to arrange for more humanitarian supplies in the south. I don't think it's going to have a huge effect on the battlefield. I think anybody who could have left already has left, and those who are still inside are those who have decided that they don't want to leave their homes or those who have maybe been prevented from leaving by Hamas. So it looks at this moment that the humanitarian pauses are not, are not going to change much, and as it is, Israel has yet to agree to them. So what comes next? So as we're recording this on Monday morning, it looks as if the next phase of the ground offensive has already began. Yesterday evening, the uh, internet and phone networks in Gaza were blocked, which we saw in the past as usually a prelude to another ground assault. And there were some massive airstrikes which were felt halfway across Israel. From what we're hearing, they were probably bunker-busting bombs trying to take out more parts of Hamas's underground network. The Israeli army hasn't yet given any details of the operation of the last few hours, but it would seem that this is the beginning of the next phase in which Israeli forces are working their way into Gaza city centre. Angel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Ori. then. How have you been enjoying our new podcast service? I told you that the weekend show is brilliant and hopefully by now you will see why. If you didn't listen to our most recent episode of the weekend intelligence, you really should. It's a deep dive into the challenges of going through IVF. Why is it still so expensive? Why are the odds still so rubbish? And why is the grief so uniquely horrible? Yeah, grab your tissues, you're going to need them. To listen, you'll need to subscribe to Economist Podcast Plus if you're not already a print or digital subscriber to The Economist. To sweeten the deal, and because I really think you need to listen to that episode, you can get a free 30-day trial subscription by going to the show notes or just searching for Economist Podcasts online. So get in there while that offer lasts. One of the enduring questions about the COVID-19 pandemic, one that we certainly spent a lot of airtime discussing on the show, was how or whether it would permanently change the way people lived or worked or spent their money. When it passed, unemployment in rich countries quickly dropped back to pre-pandemic lows and measures such as GDP got more or less back on track. In some ways, it looked like COVID might have been a blip. But with the benefit of some time and some number crunching, it's now clear that some consumer habits have actually shifted, and possibly for good. We appear to be in the age of the hermit. So in the years leading up to the pandemic, societies across the rich world followed this pretty similar pattern where year after year, the share of people spending that went on services went up and up and up. Callum Williams is a senior economics writer at The Economist. 
And this is a really long-standing trend. And it's basically because as societies get richer, they demand more in the way of luxury experiences like hotels and restaurants, and they demand more in the way of healthcare. And because they have more money, they need more financial planning. So they demand more in the way of financial services. But then in 2020, the pandemic came along and everything changed. When lockdowns came in, it wasn't possible to consume many of the sorts of services that people were used to consuming. So international travel. For a second year in a row, COVID is causing headaches for holiday travelers across the U.S. Hotels. About one billion hotel rooms unsold by Christmas. Meeting up with friends in bars and pubs, haircuts. The salon owners say as some businesses are seeing a sign of hope, they are still struggling. And so what happened is that the share of spending to services across the rich world collapsed. And in its place, people spent a lot more on goods, so physical things that you can drop on your foot because they were spending more time at home. And so people bought exercise bikes, they bought better computers, they bought webcams, and they also bought a lot more food and wine to have at home because they weren't able to go out and enjoy it with their friends. But we're now several years on from those lockdown periods and have spent a lot of time in the interim talking about everything rebounding back. Has spending on services come back to those pre-pandemic levels? So it is higher now as a share of spending than it was in 2020 and 2021, but it has not rebounded to pre-pandemic levels in most countries. And really the sort of relevant counterfactual is what would you have expected it to be in the absence of the pandemic? And when you compare it in that way, it's well below where you would expect it to be. So what that really boils down to is there's a lot less in the way of leisure activities, leisure services, which are taking place outside the home. And what you're getting instead is that a lot of money is being redirected into goods. So things like chairs and fridges, purchases of those are still pretty high relative to pre-pandemic norms, clothes, food, cars. One interesting kind of wrinkle in the data is that it seems as though these habits, what you could call hermit habits, are less ingrained in countries that spent less time in lockdown. So for example, if you look at New Zealand, which initially did lockdown pretty hard, but then had a pretty normal experience for a lot of COVID, services spending has recovered pretty smartly. And that's also true in South Korea, which again is one of those COVID success stories. But then if you look at countries where the battle against COVID-19 was much longer and much more painful, there's evidence that behaviours have changed in a more fundamental way. So for example, if you look at somewhere like the Czech Republic or America, the services share of spending is really a long way below its pre-COVID trend. But thinking about the broad average, a lot of the conversation about rebounds has been how everything came screaming back and you couldn't get hotel reservations and airline prices went through the roof and so on. That doesn't all seem to line up. No, it doesn't. And this is something that surprised me when I looked at the data because it doesn't seem to square with the anecdotal evidence. I think what's really going on here is, yes, demand today for things like travel and hospitality is higher than it was in 2020, but spending is actually in most places a lot lower on those things than it was in 2019. It's really a story of supply of those services rather than a story of demand. If you look in most countries, employment in things like hospitality is a lot lower than it was in 2019. And there's many potential reasons why that could be true. Perhaps people realise that actually those jobs are pretty volatile and potentially you expose yourself to infection or who knows. Employment is a lot lower than it was. What's also true is that a lot of the hotels and restaurants and so on that would have opened in 2020 and 2021 never did. And so there's a kind of deficit of those establishments, which means that there's less supply on the market now than you would expect there to be. It's really that that's causing prices to go up rather than sky high demand.
So there are some macro factors here, as you say, that basically there was a big gap in the building of new businesses. But the hermit behavior thing is interesting. Why do you think that that's stuck around now that we're free to not live like hermits? Well, I think there are three potential things going on. One is that people, even if it's subconsciously, are afraid of infection or more afraid than they were in 2019. And so what that means is that they avoid services where they're in close proximity with people. So one way of teasing this out is to look at what's going on with transport. In America, for example, people are much less likely to use public transport than they were before the pandemic and much more likely to use private cars. You see a similar thing with personal grooming where hairdressers, nail salons, massage parlors, they're doing less well than they were before the pandemic while people are spending a lot more on on do-it-yourself stuff. So that's consistent with point number one. Point number two is that working from home has endured in many countries to some degree. And so what that means is that people are just spending more time at home and so they're less likely to consume the kinds of services that they would consume when they're in the office. The classic example being buying a sandwich or some sushi or something at lunch. They're a bit less likely to do that now than they were in 2019. And then the third thing, which is more speculative, but in a sense is the most interesting one, is that in some cultural sense, people enjoy their own company today more than they used to in 2019 they have become genuinely more hermit-like. So if you look at the data on sleep, for example, in the US, people are sleeping a little bit more than they were before the pandemic. They're also spending less on memberships of clubs and societies, the local tennis club, that kind of thing. People are less likely to do that now than they were in 2019. And they're more likely to be spending money on solitary pursuits that you do at home. So pets, gardening, spending on all that has gone up. And in fact, if you look at people's behaviour online for solitaire, that card game you play by yourself, Google searches for that globally are about twice what they were before the pandemic. So in a sense, one of COVID's big legacies is to pull people apart. Well, how lasting though? Is there a chance perhaps that humanity is just still in a reacclimating to normal life or do you think this is going to stick? There is a chance it all recovers. But I think what pre-pandemic behaviour showed is that it really takes quite a lot to shift people into a new way of doing things. Certainly when it comes to working from home, it seems pretty clear now that there will be permanently a higher level of working from home than there was before the pandemic. And so that will have an impact on services spending. Whether the other hermit-like behaviour endures, we'll have to come back in a few years and take the temperature of the global economy. Well, I'll just sit around and play solitaire till then. Callum, thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jason. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. It started with a TikTok video. Sandra Solstad is a senior data journalist at The Economist. Last year, a 17-second clip that promoted doing the absolute minimum at work sparked a quiet quitting frenzy. I recently learned about this term called quiet quitting, where you're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond 
You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. The video itself is amazingly anodyne, but it struck a nerve and catapulted the term of quiet quitting into the public consciousness. The term is deceptive, as well as hard to pin down. So-called quiet quitters seek to improve their work-life balance not by leaving their jobs, but merely by not going above and beyond. Perhaps because chatter about quiet quitting took off on TikTok, it is often associated with Gen Z, people born after 1996. But doing as little as possible at work is hardly new, and it's by no means confined to the youngest workers. Sandra, as a young worker myself, I'm intrigued. Tell me a bit about this research you did. So obviously there's a lot of interest in quiet quitting. People wonder what it's about. And and I really wanted to look into how prevalent it was. So Gallup did this annual survey of workplace engagement, and they actually did it in 143 countries, broken down by age and gender. And for 73 of the countries, we had complete data. So age, demography, and how engaged these people were at work. And what the results suggested was that remarkably few people, just about anywhere, actually are engaged happily with their work. And how exactly did the survey measure that? So the way they did it is that Gallup asked respondents 12 questions related to engagement with work, including whether they feel their job is important and whether they felt their colleagues were committed to doing quality work, that kind of thing. And then they used a model to categorize people into three categories, depending on their combination of answers. Those who appeared most engaged were classified as thriving, meaning that they were involved and enthusiastic about their work and workplace. At the other end of the spectrum is loud quitting, where people may be resentful and voice their unhappiness at work. Quiet quitting falls in between. The employees who fall into this middle category are thought to be putting in the time, but not much else. And so when you crunch the numbers, how many workers qualify as quiet quitters? So the average of the 73 countries in our data show that 35% of people were at either end of the spectrum of workplace satisfaction. So 20% were thriving and very connected to their work, and 15% were loud quitters and absolutely couldn't stand their work. The remaining 75 were quietly dragging their feet. So you could say that the vast majority of workers are actually quiet quitters. And does it vary between the 73 countries that you looked at? Yeah, there's actually quite a bit of variation between countries. Among the big economies, America and India have by far the highest share of thrivers. Both countries, around one-third of workers, answered in a way that suggested they were thriving. But in Italy and Japan, just 5% said the same. So that's quite a large difference. But I think care needs to be taken before reading too much into such international differences. Some of the variation is due to differences in the way people in different countries interpret these questions. What does seem to be fairly clear, though, is that there was little correlation between attitudes to work and age. So in our index, just 21% of people age 40 and over were thriving. But that's basically the same as the people from 15 to 39, which was 19%. So age doesn't matter too much when it comes to levels of work engagement, at least according to this survey. So in other words, the survey debunks the cliche that Gen Z is especially unhappy at work. I think it does. There's no evidence that Gen Z is quietly quitting at much higher rates than anyone else. And it shows that gender doesn't matter that much either. Globally, there was a difference. 21% of women were highly engaged compared to 19% of men. But that is a very slight difference in some data that isn't perfect. What the survey does suggest is that there might be a lot of untapped potential in the global workforce. Because so many people say they aren't engaged, 
Presumably, if they could be, then they would be more productive. But at the same time, many Europeans who the survey say are less eager than Americans are also more productive by the hour. Even if they tell researchers that they don't want to go above and beyond, that seems to be good enough. And maybe that's true for all of us. Sonja, thank you for coming on the show. And on behalf of Gen Z, thank you for vindicating us. It's my pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show and all our brand new content by getting in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And don't forget that if you still haven't signed up to Economist Podcast Plus, all the details that you need are in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.